One of the most common statements I hear from parents in my office as we discuss their child's gender dysphoria is, well, of course they feel uncomfortable in their body. Everybody feels uncomfortable in their body at that age. Heck, I still feel uncomfortable in my body sometimes, a lot of the time. How do we know this is about gender and not just about body image? My answer is this. Body image issues are about not liking the way we look and feeling ashamed or embarrassed of our body for not being pretty enough, thin enough, strong enough, healthy enough, lovable enough. It's about satisfaction. In previous episodes, we've talked about different types of gender dysphoria. And when it comes to body dysphoria, it isn't because they don't like the way they look or they aren't fitting an unobtainable beauty standard or because their peers are picking on them for having a different shaped body. I know plenty of trans people who had no issues with the way that their body looked. It just didn't match their gender. It's because their body parts are cueing people around them to talk to them a certain way, treat them a certain way, and are sending all these physical signals that make them feel completely invisible even though they're standing right in front of you. The distress is around the incongruence that they feel between how they look and their assigned sex at birth. They're similar, but also very different. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host slash head counselor, Mackenzie Dunham, but you can call me Mac. Okay, I've been doing this in every episode so far, so we're doing it again. So before we get started, a couple of things. One, if you are new here, if you are a first-time listener or you started midway through the season or a different season, if you haven't gone back to season one, if you didn't start there, go back and start there. Season one is full of family stories from parents who have been where you're at and come out the other side. It's really the key to, I don't feel alone in this anymore. And it really does help. And it really is the best place to start. So go back to the beginning. We'll still be here. You're going to binge it. We all know that. So you'll be back. It'll be fine. Second thing, we've been working on building a community for you. Because in case you haven't caught on, the aloneness of this is really a big part of what I'm trying to combat by doing a podcast. We have set up a Facebook group. We've got a Discord. The Facebook group is called Camp Wild Heart Community, and it's totally private. The Discord server is also private, but it requires you to request access. So you actually have to email me, which is camp at wildheartsociety.org. That way I can keep everything private and locked down and nobody has to worry about accidentally getting outed. Also, that camp at wildheartsociety.org email, I really do answer it. So if you have questions or anything like that, fire away. I will answer. Might be in the middle of the night. Might take me a little bit, but I'll get to it. The last one, and definitely the one I'm the most excited about, is that we're doing our very first in-person Camp Wildheart. I can't tell you how exciting this is for me. I love camp. I mean, I made the podcast camp themed. I think camp is magical and beautiful. And I'm like so excited to be able to like go, let alone lead. We're going to be at Sequest State Park, uh, which is about halfway between Seattle and Portland. So it's a West Coast thing. This is family camp. So parents, trans kids, siblings, everybody's welcome. The Wild Heart Society team is going to be doing uh, programming and providing a full camp experience. It is tent camping, so I want to make sure that everybody knows that. And the goal is that everybody gets to connect with other families and 
kids get to be 100% themselves and everybody can learn things that are actually relevant to their life. Oh, also the best part, real life campfires. There will be marshmallows. There will be singing. There will be wading into the wilderness and discovering more about ourselves than we knew. For more information, go to wildheartsociety.org slash events slash camp. All right, with that out of the way, today we're talking about bodies. Again, only this time it's a little different. Today's episode is all about coming home to the body. Our guests today are Dana and Hillary, the founders and directors of BeNourished.org and the Center for Body Trust. While their focus on bodies and eating disorders, their work directly applies to the experiences of transgender individuals who struggle with disordered eating. It's important for me to note that just like with suicide, being trans isn't what makes someone have an eating disorder or be suicidal. These things are not unique to the trans community at all. They're one of the many burdens of humanity that we all share. However, the numbers are higher in the trans community than they are in the cisgender community because they are a means of coping with the stress and stigma that comes along with being trans. It isn't the transness that's the problem. It's the way people treat the trans people. I reached out to Dana and Hillary because I knew that their model for body trust was different than any other disordered eating modality that I've ever come across. And I have searched because the traditional eating disorder model for treatment does not work when you're trying to control your curves. I'm thrilled and grateful that they're here to share their insights on how we can learn to love and care for our bodies, no matter who we are. For more than 15 years, Dana Sturdivant, she, her, has helped people let go of their chronic patterns of dieting and disordered eating and move into a more authentic, sustainable way to occupy and nurture their bodies. As a nutrition therapist, educator, speaker, writer, and activist, she advocates for food and body sovereignty. For more than 20 years, her business partner, Hillary Kenevy, has worked with people to reckon with the vicious cycle of disordered eating and dieting, body shame, weight bias, and the fragmentation, oppression, and trauma that often sits at the center. As a licensed professional counselor, facilitator, educator, and coach, she sees that we have been separated from our embodied knowing of our value and our wholeness. Together, they founded the Center for Body Trust, and last year they co-authored and released a book called Reclaiming Your Body Trust, A Path to Healing and Liberation, which you can buy pretty much anywhere. I just bought it for my friend. Dana and Hillary's work isn't about trans people, just about bodies. And it's important for you to hear about as you help your child and yourself wade through the muck of coming home to their body. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the interview. I thought it was really important that I should talk with you about this because so often I hear from parents and clearly it's... for me, it sounds like it's coming from a place of their own body trust wounds. Um, And there's a lot of concern when their child comes out as trans that what this, what their child is really experiencing is this distrust with their body. So I thought, Oh, parents should probably dive into this a little bit and see kind of where they're at with it and see how much of their own body distrust is showing up for them. When, Someone decides that they want to learn to trust their body again. 
Where do you recommend they start? Because I know for a lot of people, the idea of becoming a body instead of just a floating head is very scary. Yeah, it feels like there's no reason to do it sometimes, except that a lot of folks that show up to Body Trust have had a period of time of kind of reckoning with like, you know, what I've been doing hasn't been working in air quotes. And I can't, I don't want to go back to any of that, but I really don't know how to move forward. Mm -hmm. So we really notice that folks do benefit from doing kind of a heady and overly intellectualized dive into reading the things and listening to the podcast like Food Psych and others and the maintenance phase and things like that that really help folks come back around over and over again to the idea that dieting has maybe led to disordered eating and that it's never not harmful. And that, you know, as parents, especially like our hearts can be broken by the fact that our kids are going to experience a lot of shit in the world because um, they can't pull off mainstream in a way that protects them. And, and still, like, it's not our job to keep them from being hurt. You know, we need these reinforcements, and I as a parent need those reinforcements all the time, the reminders um, to stick to the path of truth. And that's true for me, and that's true for my kids, right? And it's painful and it's hard. So I think getting a lot of those validations up front is really important. And then we find people move into you know, this phase of really understanding what ruptured their relationship with food and body um, by looking at their body story and looking at the evidence of diet culture, like I was just talking about. And then, you know, allowing themselves to feel things about that. And most likely, and for most people, there's a lot of grief there. So that's kind of what the beginning stages typically look like for people. And I know I just sold it. Like everyone's like, oh my God, sounds amazing. Sign me up. I'm going to grieve and reckon. I'm painful, dramatic stuff. Sounds amazing. But um, but the truth feels good. It does. You know, our bodies like the truth. I think the first thing we often say is, of course, you don't trust your body. Like, it makes sense that you don't trust your body in this culture. And when, while trust can be ruptured in a matter of seconds, rebuilding trust takes time. Like when we've lost trust in any relationship in our life, we don't just say, I'm going to trust you now, right? Like trust is rebuilt through small, consistent acts over time. And part of rebuilding trust involves understanding that trust and acknowledging that trust has been broken. And then it's through these small, consistent acts over time that we rebuild trust. So, you know, we don't just go, okay, I'm going to trust you now. Like it's something, it's a very vulnerable act. Um, and, you know, it's something that with continued exploration, like Hillary said, with the heady exploration, um, we start to move closer to it. And we've all been impacted by body hierarchies, some of us more than others, and certainly parents doing their own exploration around what's come between them and feeling at home in their bodies can certainly help them support their kids in their own exploration of this. 
And I think that a lot of the parents that I work with in particular really like over and over and I hear them say, I want my kid to feel comfortable in their skin, right? And they're really saying, I want my kid to feel at home in their body. But there's they're just really unclear on how to do that because they haven't really done it themselves. I'm really curious, what does building small moments over time with your body look like? I mean, it can be so many different things, um, almost anything. So, but some examples would be like, I begin to notice when I'm hungry or I go pee when I need to pee or um, I notice when I'm thirsty and I think about getting something to drink. Um, it can be really simple things like that. It can be for a lot of us who have grown up in diet culture and are trying to figure out how to eat in a way that takes care of our body well. Sometimes it can be remembering that you're an eater and having a plan for food more days than not, Mm -hmm. you know, even like lunch, you know, like all the, all the meals. Can I ask a follow-up on that one? Yeah. If someone were to have a plan for um, for food that day, I can I can recall from my own experiences with like my life as well as like watching my mom um, and knowing that a plan for food means looking at the menu ahead of time, deciding what you're going to eat and figuring out exactly how many calories are in it. So could you clarify, like, what does a plan for food for the day mean? I mean... You know, we just are excited when people eat regularly when we first start talking to folks. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's nuance beyond that. Um, but mostly it's like I'm preparing to be an eater all day today. Like I'm not trying to like make eating some like uh, second thought. I want it to be a first thought. But then also, you know, for some people that might be moving away from vigilance about food, So like, you know, I'm going to carry around a food bag full of food I like, all different kinds of food, not just food my previous self may may have deemed worthy or healthy, but all kinds of food that I like. And that way I am going to, you know, I'm going to be allowing myself to heal from the chronic deprivation that was previously my relationship with food. A lot of body trust work is really about healing from deprivation, real or imagined. I think it also, you know, in building trust, it's also in the body checking behaviors that we kind of habitually do, whether that is comparing our body to another person or zeroing in on a particular body part in the mirror or, um, you know, trying on the clothes that don't quite fit, but you wish they did, you know, um, feeling for fatness or feeling for bones, like those kinds of things. When we let go of those, um, or start to notice ourselves doing those because they're usually a little unconscious, uh, that can be a real shift in the process too. The body checking I know is for a lot of people so ingrained, right? They don't even know they're doing it. I see that a lot in trans kids, right? Like there's just a ton of like constant comparison between their body and their cisgender peers. I try to work with folks to like, note, like first step, we just notice. We just got to, pay like recognize that it's there um and then eventually reach to the go to the place where we can find compassion for the part of you that's doing that um what does looking letting go of body checking look like in body trust i mean i think part of it is 
I think everyone we work with has some awareness of body checking and habitual body monitoring. And it's way more pervasive than they realize. So there's some awareness of it. They don't realize how much time in their day it's taking up. And so sometimes the first step is to just notice. And this is common. People say, I'm I'm noticing I'm using the word notice a lot. (laughs) 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 And, you know, choice happens where we pay attention. So when we have more awareness, we have more choices. You know, sometimes people might uh, track it for 24 hours. It's not recommended to do it more than that because it's really activating, but it can help you see it in places you haven't named it before. And then, you know, it's when you notice, you you know, you get dressed in the morning and you go to check your clothes and see if you like your outfit. And then that checking of the outfit is becomes 10 minutes of scrutinizing the intention was not to body check, but you get sucked in and then you notice, oh my gosh, I'm body checking and you're, you know, turning to the side or whatever you're doing. It, and then it's like, oh, and then it, we redirect, you know, if we're feeling for bones, it's like, oh, I'm doing that thing and drop, can I drop my arm or, oh, I'm comparing myself to others. What else can I look at in the room? It's through the awareness that we can start to change it. We also, you know, sometimes, um, we do things like um, getting rid of the scale or which sometimes if people are weighing multiple times a day, uh, getting rid of the scale entirely is a little more daunting. So we recommend that they reduce the frequency with which they weigh, that they put the scale somewhere that they don't see it. So it's not this invitation every time they go into the bathroom. Also people, people save photos you know, and our clients with eating disorders will have a photo of a, a, a folder with all these photos that they go through to body check and compare. And, you know, and I do think when people are transitioning, there may be some value to them documenting so they can see the changes and see the gender yeah, affirmation happening. So there's nuance to this conversation. And we've all been impacted by pervasive anti-fat bias and what sometimes starts as seeing what if we're passing becomes, you know, seeing if we're fat and seeing if people can tell our fatness. So there's a lot of stuff to tease out in this. There's lots of layers. Um, But those are some of my examples of how we might reduce body checking and practice. I also think that a lot of kids do, not just kids, I say kids a lot because that's sort of the focus of my work, but adults as well, will do, um, will see their fat as curves and any sort of curve on an AFAB person feels very dysphoric. And so I'm, I know that a lot of, I mean, disordered eating is so pervasive among in the trans community. And I see a lot of that come from, come into play with trying to control the shape of their body to make it more in alignment with their gender. And I'm just curious from your point of view, um, is there a gender that is immune to this? Is there a gender that doesn't have to deal with body issues? Nope. No. Didn't think so. No. And, you know, I mean, Caleb Luna's written about this, about the gender nonconformity of their fatness. And, you know, San Chang has spoken a lot about how 
you know, what we envision as a non-binary body, as an androgynous body, is is so rooted in white supremacist beauty ideals and standards that, you know, when we when we develop an analysis on how we've been socialized to think about bodies in hierarchies and where we place them along the hierarchy, it really allows us to kind of pull the lens back and really question why we're upholding our bodies to these standards, which none of us would have chosen to begin with. Yeah. Because the way that people go about trying to treat disordered eating in the general population doesn't necessarily always work for trans folks. Um, and I saw your eyes get really big and I'm like, it, it rarely seems to work. It's work for many people, frankly, and especially trans folks. Yeah. Um, and it seems like it just replaces one rigidity with another rigidity. So I've been, I had been working, looking forever to try and find something that I felt could address what the people in my office were doing. And that's how I found y'all. Um, really trying to work on the concept of just coming back home to your body. Um, I'm curious about the, I'd love for you to say more about the ties to white supremacy. Um, because I know that when I bring that up with people, for a lot of people, it's like, oh my God, I didn't even know that was a thing. There seems to be a lot more awareness around white supremacy and how it's interacting in our lives and how it shows up and the privilege that people in white bodies carry with them day in, day out. Um, but I haven't heard it talked about so much around body trust issues. Just curious, could you say more about how that ties together in the white beauty standards? I mean, I think about something our trainer and mentor and colleague and dear friend Desiree Attaway says is that we're, we are easier to control when parts of ourselves are fragmented. So when I think about like floating head phenomena with the body, like when we are disconnected from the body, we are disconnected from our own knowing or from our intuition. This culture really, the dominant systems uh, main are, are maintained through our fragmentation and our hustling and our distraction and our worthiness, right? We're all hustling for worthiness. We're not hustling for to be thin. We're hustling to be worthy. We're not hustling for health. We're hustling for worthiness, right? And, and who made up the rules about who's worthy and who's not worthy, whose bodies have value and whose bodies don't have value. And that very much comes from white dominant culture, from patriarchy, from cisgender white men who decided who was attractive and who wasn't and controlled all the media that we see and all the kinds of bodies we see, which impacts how, what we believe is beautiful. You know, there's a couple of ways to think about beauty. Reagan Chastain says perceiving beauty is a skill set, you know, that that we've been given a pair of glasses to view the world through. And it's really like shattering those glasses and getting to see what we find beautiful. We write about this in the book that about Hillary's kids in the classroom had a project when they were young. I think it was kindergarten, preschool age where, you know, their, their teacher had them decide, you know, have this beauty project and what do you find beautiful and, you know, many of the items that the kids gathered over this course of time were nothing that the adults would have 
deemed beautiful, like mud, you know, bugs, right? So we we are told what's beautiful and what's and we are th those things are reinforced or challenged in this culture. And so perceiving beauty can be a skill set that we learn to see beauty where we haven't been able to name it before. Gloria Lucas says, fuck beauty, fuck beauty. I don't want white supremacist beauty standards. I don't give a shit about beauty. I, that's a different way to, to approach beauty. Um, but I think what we want to do is really divest from what we've been handed because we really missed out on a lot of bodies and a lot of pleasure um, because we have, you know, internalized these things. And opportunities too. Like I can very clearly recall my mother telling me that she, could, she couldn't apply for a specific job. Um, because she needed to lose 30 pounds first. Um, and the constant diet that she was on her entire life and how much that tortured her. And then how she learned in her 60s that she was malnourished, even though she did, quote unquote, everything they told her to. That's right. That's such a common story. It's a devastating story. Yeah. And I think when, it, you know, when we're thinking about white supremacy and the intersections here, you know, I think it also brings me to, like how non-binary and trans folks have to intersect with this medical system that's steeped in really, you know, unanalyzed beliefs about health and size. You know, the whole system has rooted itself into BMI as some meaningful measure when we know that it was never meant to measure health in the first place and that the person who created it, you know, has had a lot of learnings in eugenics and the whole point of the creation but was eugenics. So, you know, there's really nothing that we're interacting with that hasn't been touched by white supremacy and dominance. And so even to access gender affirming care or surgery, right? Life-saving surgeries, people um, have to look the part and people are being denied you know, surgery based on BMI, even though it's life-saving and things like that, and that they'll do, you know, weight loss surgery on anybody at any time. So, you know, I think that there's something I've heard in San Cheng speak to, and I cannot speak to it with the um, experience or, or, or be as articulate as Sand was about it, but I think, you know, the a lot of the measures around affirming gender are rooted in whether or not you're going to end up looking like um, what people think a healthy white guy looks like. A white woman looks like. And that's fucked. Yeah. And really powerful to just sit with and consider. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lack of representation that's valuable, right, for kids, I, you know, to see folks that are feeling affirmed and celebratory in their expression of gender. Yeah. And people who do um, live their life publicly and with their gender expression being a hodgepodge of all different everything face ridicule and tons and tons of hate for not fitting what we think a, a white man or white woman should look like. I want to go back to this thing about your kids, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm a mom too. Um, mm -hmm. 
My kids are eight and 11. And um, do you remember, or has it happened, when your kids started to recognize body size? Mm-hmm. It's been really recent. How old are your kids? 10 and 13. Mm-hmm. We had a good ride. yep yeah my daughter when she was six or seven um started looking at the back of boxes for calories and when i was like where did you learn about calories she was oh it's school Mm -hmm. that's the school definitely got a call um and then shortly thereafter i she's talked about I think I need to go on a diet. And I was like, why do we need to do that? Like, the, let's talk about what you're experiencing. And it was a lot of the content that she was watching on, like, just online. YouTube and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just sort of woven into different YouTuber storylines and different things. And I kind of want to call attention to the fact that the exposure to toxic body image messages seems like it's happening it seems like it happened a lot younger for my kid than it happened for me um and that might be my delusion that it didn't really happen for me until i was like a teenager when my mom really started to like get on me about it but that message came from my mom first right and for my kid that's not the first place it came from because it happened so much earlier i'm just curious hillary when did when your kids started talking about it how did you start to frame the conversation of or was the conversation already going? The conversation has always been happening. And, you know, it's taken on new life as the 13-year-old has become very 13, like entering teenage uh, boydom. And um, um, his younger brother is influenced by just even the way the 13-year-old breathes. So <laughs> everyone's on for the ride. Um, for the... My older kid, it's about, like, I think soccer performance um, was a big thing for him. And I think, like, following athletes, seeing more athlete-related commercials, protein, blah, and every damn thing, um, wanting to build muscle, like, associating muscle with goodness um, in his, like, cis gendered presentation that he's aligned with that was what shifted it and i also really firmly believe that this was a chance for individuation for him it really sucks i'm like oh he could either be a republican or he could diet <laughs> um and here we are I'm not saying both, but i'm not saying no um so the conversation to support him where he is developmentally has been me having to keep my F and mouth shut, mm-hmm. which is hard the year my book comes out. Um, there's a lot going on here, as you can tell. But I, I think um, what I've tried to do is keep food neutral. So if he wants to buy protein bars, they're just shoved in the same snack drawer as all the candy. And it's all just food, right? And if you know, he wants to, last week he wanted to try some new Sprite cranberry thing that came out and my partner took him to the store to get it he was real specific about it so they went up to the store and get it and they found sugar free and 
and full sugar Sprite in both flavors. And we were just like, we'll get both and try them, you know? So we're just trying to make it not about, there's nothing elevated about good choices in our house, like what has deemed good in the world. And everything is a taste test. The same way we would have done it, maybe oppositely based on the valuation of food when they were young. So now I'm introducing these so-called health foods that have never been in our world before in the mix. And then the other part, um, well, we have a big commute in the morning to his school and I exclusively listen to the maintenance phase Mm. on that commute. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's happening. And then the other is just like making sure his sovereignty and autonomy is not going to be implicated by my, um, you know, is not going to be trounced on, um, has been a new way for us to be in this together. Yeah. You know, so different than when he was young. And I just got to say like, well, some people have bigger bodies and rounder bodies and some people have skinny, skinnier, straighter, up and down bodies. And aren't they all amazing? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we've always been. So it's been interesting to see this come up. But I totally agree with you that this is largely held by um, this is like YouTube content and TikTok content um, Mm -hmm. that's influenced this. And I think things are going to change. You know, one thing I got to do this year, which was like the best thing ever, was be on a committee for the local school district to rewrite the elementary curriculum. And it was all like badass um, farmers that were all people of color on this panel. And then like me and some other like developmental folks. And, you know, it is not going to be even recognizable. That's amazing. It's amazing. So tell me about the book. What do we need to know about it? I've seen, I've gotten lots of emails. So I know a little bit already, but... You know, we've been working together for 17 years to develop the language and philosophy that is body trust. And, you know, the book we'd written have written five years ago would have been very different than the book that's out today. Our book, Reclaiming Body Trust, A Path to Healing and Liberation, came out August 30th. I think the hardest thing about writing the book was coming up with the narrative arc of the book, which took us a while. But we finally landed on um, what we call the narrative arc of the work, really, which is the rupture, the reckoning, and the reclamation. Uh, the book has three three sections, really, and it starts with the rupture and how do we lose trust with our bodies and understanding all that's come between us and being at home in our bodies and this in this pattern of coping that we've developed to survive pervasive anti-fat bias and weight stigma, as well as other body hierarchies in the world. And then, you know, people usually, once they understand how they lost trust, they usually want to skip the reckoning part and move right on to the reclamation. Um, And the reckoning is often where the magic happens. And as you can imagine, there's a lot we reckon with or come to terms with on the path to body trust. We reckon with the fact that we've been duped, Um, that we've invested so much time and money and energy into something that's never been about helping us in any sustainable way. 
we reckon with the illusion of control. Sometimes we're reckoning with the damage that's happened as a result of pursuing this stuff. There's, there's a lot of grief we name. And we also reckon with our identity as an eater that we don't get out of this requirement for food. Like it, it doesn't go away. And that's partly what Hillary was getting at was like, you know, a lot of people we work with when they leave the house in the morning to go to work, there's, there's no, no even recognition that they will need food in the day. <laughs> so we're not talking about being so overly planned that every snack and meal is tightly planned for the entire week. But is there some recognition that you're going to get hungry and you will need food and how are you going to get it today? If that means stopping at a restaurant or picking something up or bringing the food bag, as Hillary said. So there's a lot around reckoning with food and eating that we do in that phase. And then ultimately, the, the reclamation is what does this homecoming look like? How do we enter the wilderness, so to speak, which is the chapter that starts that section of the book where we're leaving, you know, this world where we've been so heady and calories and points and do I deserve it and all this stuff and really getting below the neck and and into uncharted territory that we you know those dieting tools and compasses are no longer useful in that terrain and where can they get it everywhere literally almost everywhere hopefully in your local bookshop and if you find it there send us a picture of that too because we get so excited Hillary read the audiobook, so it's available on audio, it's available on Kindle, and then you can get a hard copy too. So if parents walk away with nothing else from this conversation, I've got two thoughts that just jumped into my head. So I was like, I really think that the idea of like doing your body story is really powerful um, and one that will soon be seen in my office because um, we do gender stories all the time, but I don't really do these stories. Love. Yeah. Yeah. So, but if parents walk away with nothing else, what do you hope they're walking away with from our conversation? That food is hard in this culture for folks to figure out and that you don't have to get food right. Like I would really put down worry about nutrition and focus on building a relationship with food in your household and between each other that feels um, clear and easy and accessible. Easy might be a stretch, but like you want kids to have a lot of access to food. You want to not worry about the ins and outs and what they're eating. And we really want kids to develop a relationship with food that feels like they know how to navigate it instead of feeling scared and worried that they're doing it wrong all the time. I would say, you know, you've been harmed too in this culture and we often say there's a lot more to unlearn than there is to learn on the path to body trust and that your own unlearning will really benefit your your family and your kids and that you're allowed to do that work. And we really encourage you to do that work because it will be much easier to show up for your kids when you've worked through your own stuff around this. And that with trans and, and non-binary kids, like, the the goal of this work is gender affirmation, not not body acceptance, probably not even body trust, right? That the the first priority for kids who 
are trans and non-binary is to be affirmed in their gender identity. And that we know that when kids are affirmed in their gender identity and people are affirmed in their gender identity, their eating disorder symptomology improves. Absolutely, yes. Right? And yeah. so gender affirmation is the goal. Gender affirming care is the goal. Um, Sam Chang says there's no no room for the worst word cosmetic in gender affirming care. Like surgeries may be needed to help people be affirmed in their gender. Um, you know, once people are affirmed in their gender, then they can start to kind of work on some of the body acceptance stuff. But, you know, there's a lot of nuance in how we have those conversations. But I always... Like we don't try to work on body acceptance without gender affirmation. The focus is gender affirmation first and foremost. Yeah, I think it would be impossible to try and get a trans kid to do any sort of body acceptance work, body trust work, body anything work without first really affirming their gender identity. Yeah, absolutely. Through and through. Well, thank you both so, 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 so much. Really appreciate your time and all of the work that you've done. Um, truly changing the world. I really, I love it. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate hearing it, being reminded. Yeah. Yeah. Nice spending time with you. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for Campfire today. We hope this conversation with Hillary and Dana has provided you with valuable insights and tools to create a safe and supportive space for your kids to talk and express themselves. Remember, body stuff affects us all differently. Just because you had issues with your body or know someone else that did, it doesn't mean that that's what your kid is experiencing. It also doesn't mean that they don't need support to know how to trust their body. Get curious with them. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We're on Facebook as Wild Heart Society. We've got that private Facebook group called Camp Wild Heart Community. We're on Instagram at wild.heart.society. Or you can email us at camp at wildheartsociety.org. Also, if you're looking for someone to work with your family, Wild Heart Society offers a wide range of services from individual and group therapy to community events to family transition coaching. We would love to hear from you and continue the conversation. Thanks again for showing up here and for your kids. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so that you don't miss future campfires and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us and we want to make sure that anyone who needs one knows that there's a bunk for them at Camp Wildheart. Heart.